Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Once again, we have the chief with us, who has been gracious enough to spend some time with us for the last two weeks uh, and is now going to be uh, talking with us again today. And we're, we're pretty excited about that. We're, we're learning a lot. This has been quite, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in this room, a lot of wisdom. Yeah, so. too bad this isn't a, a visual because this room is uh, <laughs> there's a lot of story in one room. Yeah, well, with the chief's pr- permission, I'm going to take a few pictures later on. And maybe we can put those up on uh, even when you're talking about it. A nice, a nice shot of him right there against yeah. the fireplace. Really yeah, good. definitely. All right, take it away. Okay, well, uh, this week, this episode, we're going to talk a little bit. I left last week, I left off with commenting on the idea of us being wounded storytellers. So I'm exploring that idea a little bit and then looking at it in terms of our brothers and sisters the Ramapos. We all share a certain wounded posture in that we all have run into challenges that ultimately leave us changed for the experience. Some of these challenges are pretty dramatic like loss of a loved one or a serious illness or some such sacrifice that requires a changed way of being. Our stories embrace the narrative and source of these challenges. The telling of story reestablishes our identity and our position in society at large. But we are always at risk of losing our story to the professional class of story dominators. The societal class is a force that emerged fully with modernism. According to Arthur Frank, author of The Wounded Storyteller, pre-modern people had rich descriptions for disease and ethnomedicine. That is to say, culturally-based understanding of healing plants and metaphysical beings. With the Enlightenment, the emergence of the modern experience begins when popular experience is overtaken by technical experience, including complex organizations of treatment. It is modernism that establishes the idea that not all stories are equal. Professionalism constructs a hierarchy of narrative authority, Some storytellers rule, medical professionals, police officers, judges, politicians, and any post for the guidance of the many by the few. Certainly, it can be argued that a large, diverse society filled with conflicting interests requires authority figures, but a health system that requires of the ill person to surrender their narrative, desensitizing any cultural or regional connection to place, indicates a kind of colonialism as it disregards a traditional relationship to nature, which is fundamental to Native stories. The idea of Native stories presents the challenge of identifying just what the notion of Native means for stories. Native, to an area, could well depict the stories rooted in the ecological nature of the area, the histrionics of the place-based culture, the deep indigenous heritage, as well as that which the area residents identify with, So there is a diverse interpretation of Native stories. Having a long familiarity with the local population has given me an advantage of story sharing for decades, which has informed my perspective and in no doubt influenced my opinion as to the nature of the credibility of the material. While storytellers tend to share sympathies, I construct critical examination of narrative, its source, its influence, and its role in recovery. It has been my experience that Native stories tend to be medicine in and of themselves. Arthur Frank speaks of serious illness causing the loss of the destination map, 
that previously guided one's life. Through the experience of illness, a person engages the struggle for one's own story. In sharing the experience through story, a person starts to shape a new map and discover a new destination. Illness, according to Frank, disrupts the old stories. He believes that while the ill body's stories are of a personal nature, the stories told are also social. It is social both in the telling to an audience and in the shaping of the story from many points of origin. Frank focuses this idea on three objectives. One, the need for ill people to tell their stories in order to construct a new map. Two, embodiment of these stories, not just told about the body, but through it. And finally, three, the period the stories are told in, how social context affects what and how a story is told. These objectives apply with equal legitimacy for the Ramapo struggle to regain their health as much as to recover their traditional identity, starting with the first objective, the need to tell their stories in order to construct new maps. Debilitating illness alters the body's functionality while at the same time it disrupts expectations of the individual. Articulating the new disrupted body, the wounded storyteller shares his, her disappointment with new physical limitations while shaping an altered way of being with others. Frank argues it is only through the personal social narrative journey the wounded storyteller can claim a new map and destination. The Ramapos, who shared their illness journey with the record reporters, were charting their new map, just as Mickey Van Dunk, whose restrictions were so extreme, charts his own destiny based on new perceptions and in so doing refuses to surrender to illness. In much the same way, Ramapo chiefs Vincent Mann and Dwayne Perry, in telling the story of their struggle to recover their native traditions, are shaping a new map for the Ramapo nation. Aware that any romantic ideal of returning to some mythical primitive indigenous state is not an option, they struggle to claim a realized 21st century state, or a new old way. It is the telling of the Trail of Tears, or the atrocities of the American government Indian schools, or the continued second-class citizenship offered to them by a white dominant society that the Ramapos can build upon to claim their new ground for their nation. Not obsessing over past losses, but building upon the lineage of their experience. Frank's second objective is the embodiment of the wounded storyteller not just about the body but through it. Clearly the narrative that comes through a body changed by illness leaps onto uncharted ground. With a pioneer spirit, this narrative both explores and reacts, shaping the storyteller as much as being shaped by her. In similar fashion, when a native comes in contact with his physical presence, linking him with the elders, he is not held back by traditions, but propelled forth into a new terrain for exploration. This is exemplified by the work of Chief Roger de Grote, who brings traditional imagery of Grandfather Turtle into his architectural renderings, and by Kevin Powell, who muses over his boyhood stories of muskrat trapping, speculating on what lessons they bring to his eldership. And Frank's last objective is the period of the story itself. It is about the society one is a part of and how it affects what and how the story is told. Over the last 40 years, telling stories of transformation due to illness has evolved dramatically. 
What used to be hushed dialogue shared with but a few family members have become a vehicle for empowerment. Interestingly, this transition has always proven to be a challenge to the medical hierarchy. As a wounded storyteller shares experiences with each other, with other storytellers, with expectations and inquiry, with professionals, those professionals have they've discovered an increased demand on their expert ability. Managed care requires the cooperation of a participatory patient, one who is well-versed in handling their experience. With greater access to technical information, there comes a greater awareness of alternative treatments, putting the standard practitioners into a more equitable relationship with the person of illness. Likewise, as the genuine story of the Ramapos comes to light, the telling of traditional stories follows. Cindy Fountain had found wide acceptance and support for her medicine stories, like that of Grandfather Snake. From a contemporary Collegiate Society Today, whereas such tales were the stuff of folklore in years past, she has found acceptance. As she further explores her identity, she is literally deconstructing long-held colonial methodologies, both for herself and for her listeners, both for the Native and the non-Native. You know, I'm, I'm really taken by the fact that even wounded the stories continued. Do you think that Ford would have ever lifted a finger if the stories were not told, if, if nobody attempted to tell the truth, not just the, the ancient stories, but the present stories? Uh, Chief Perry said before, not just prayers, action. And in a sense, stories are the initial action. They're the first action, which then precipitates all the, the activity after that. And I'm just wondering if... if Ford ever would have done the right thing if we didn't know how to tell the story. What is it, What are your thoughts about that? I think that um, it was generous of Ford to allow us to continue to tell stories. Um, from what I've seen globally, uh, there is a, as we have a lower half a percent of extremely toxic people in every group, we have an economically half a percentage at the top that's extremely toxic, at thus far, with all the gifts that the Fords have given, it does not hide the fact that they are perhaps some of the most toxic people in the world. The question is, I personally don't don't uh, think it had any real effect. Like if I can share a story about, I won't mention any names, but I had some interactions with someone that was recently in a great seat of power. And anyway, there's maybe a dozen or so people there. I'll give you a little scenario the millionaires wore black suspenders and the billionaires at the table there. And I mean, everybody was collegial. The billionaires were either white or red suspenders. I, now I don't have suspenders. I don't know what they thought I was doing. They thought I was serving tea or something. <laughs> but the point was they talked about this man in the most scurrilous manner. And I actually, this was prior to the pop political piece. And I was thinking, uh, don't they see me sitting here? And the bottom line was, they didn't care. I didn't have nothing. They had the money. They had the power. They had the outreach. They didn't care if I knew. Man. And I think that's the same thing we're looking at with Ford. He don't care. He's not He's not going to come here and stay. You know, I'm, where's he at? In his house in London or, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think we, we, but what I will say is not only is these people extremely toxic and we need to, we all really need to pray for them. 
these people are in as much need as that lower half a percent. They're delusionally out of touch with reality and their egos are probably in a psychiatric manner. That doesn't come out if you can buy every psychiatrist you can find, but it doesn't excuse your, your, your extremely negative and cryptic behavior. Right. Dollars do not qualify you as humanity. It's just a way to get something. <laughs> and if you can walk out of your home and own what a lot of people, we see it right here and right here in the Mall Wall, Suffering Hill, you relatively live quite well, and you walk out of your home and you still think you have to put somebody down, you need help. It's tough because when you get into this idea of, well, like, like in, in, in any of the work that we've done, when Ford comes in, they don't come willingly. They come, you know, because you dragged them in. Yeah. And you get into this idea of are they doing something ethical? No, they're just doing something necessary at the moment. They're not really charting a willingness. I'll just tell you this. When we were doing, we had weekly meetings uh, when we were doing the well field down in Ramapo when we were uh, excavating the paint sludge from the well field. And the CEO from Ford met with us, flew out from Dearborn, Michigan, and met with us every week to get an update on how we were doing, and I was involved in this. And at one point, he said to me, you're not saying any of this to your friends in Ringwood, are you? Hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, those are different people, and that's different waste. And I said, it's the same hmm. waste, and anybody who is contaminated is... Are, are the same people. I mean, you know, the, even the family names from Hilburn to Ringwood, they're, right. they're the same. And he said, no, they're not. So they had, in their mind, effectively departmentalized, which tells right. you there was no ethical standing here. It was just merely, this is the job here. So a few weeks later, I was at a CAG meeting at, uh, at Ringwood up in the Borough Hall, and that CEO was there. And I wasn't speaking. There was other folks speaking. Vivian primarily was speaking at that meeting. And um, he comes over to me at one point. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, it's not that far from where we were last week or a couple of weeks ago to here. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, but these are different. And they're not. They're, no. They're, they're not. But it's, it's, see what I'm trying to say here, Chief? It's the way, I right. think it's the way they've been reared and right. taught to think, to departmentalize and pigeonhole all these different classes and groups of people as projects, as jobs. Exactly. Right. Exactly. right. Uh, also, I want to also be really clear, all of these stories that, as you so point, pointed out, are extremely important for the survival of the people. And when I say the people, I mean all people. Right. Think about your own culture and history. I'm sure somebody had set you down at some point and explained it a little bit sure that's important to keeping you alive in the quality of your life but i do think as as dr stead pointed out there's there's almost a psychopathic lack of empathy with someone at a certain economic level when you can do what they've done think about no apologies to anybody can you imagine if adolf hitler came to hillburn and give redbone a medal They'd have the entire tribe in jail by now. Yep, yep, yep. Isn't that the truth? God, boy, that says it all. And it's interesting what you're saying about certain economic level. I had a very dear friend who years ago, and I'm not saying any names, but wound up moving up the economic ladder, as it were, and and was working, uh, I wouldn't even say where, because I don't want him to identify himself, but uh, was doing really well. And... um, 
And I went in to see him and observed that part of what was the product that was being produced by the agency that he was with was exploiting indigenous people in Colombia. And I, this was years ago, but I had learned that, you know, and, and so I shared that with him. And he just looked at me and said, you don't know how this works, do you? Hmm. And he was a very close, and still is, I still know this fellow, but a very close friend and not a person who would departmentalize that way years earlier. But it's, it's, a, it's a learned behavior in, in, this, in this system, in this free enterprise capitalist system. You learn this kind of behavior to objectify whole classes of people as the, as the underdwellers. You know, compartmentalization, division, that's a, a tool of power. Right. When our current legislation right now and some of the imbeciles that have found their way into the White House divide us, it makes them more powerful and mm-hmm. us weaker. Well, this, this is why I said we have to find a means of non-confrontation, letting people know that we are not pleased with their behavior. And it's empower. you know, I'm having sort of an issue like that myself. I have people that's put together uh, petitions and things. And you know what? If I didn't, if I read the petition, I'd go like, wow, I ought to sign that. But when you, if you don't know, if you really don't know what it is and you're just reading it's on Facebook and you're living in Ohio or something, you go, boy, I better sign it. It has no basis in reality. And essentially, they're, they're, that small group is manipulating uh a tremendous amount of people by compartmentalizing and sounding like they're knowledgeable. And that's essentially what the people with the extreme wealth does. They compartmentalize and keep everybody sort of on the offensive in their box and they don't need to have reality. They've got outreach. And now in today's world, I think uh, Facebook and some of the social media has sort of availed itself to almost becoming a propaganda tool. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's logarithms are that CEO that said to Chuck, what are you doing here? That's what their logarithms do. What are you doing here? No, no, no. This is your logarithm over here. That's your, the, this right. is the other people's logarithm over there. You're trespassing into somebody's logarithm. Right. What, exactly. what the CEO was saying to Chuck is, I don't want a connector here. I don't want to bring these two people together. If they get together, then I really have a problem. As long as they're separated, I can I can wind them down whatever road I want to wind them down. Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to uh, just for my own folks, uh, Ramapos out there, if you have a real concern, if you really have a substantial concern, by all means, reach out. Let's go have a cup of coffee and let's get it clear. But I think we're we're damaging our future and the ch- future of our children by being outraged by make-believe. I can tell you this, when you speak to politicians, which we got to beg to, their staff researches it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, it endangers everyone. So we need to find a different way to, to boost our own ego besides this media circus. Unless you're also, there's some kind of income that you're getting for doing it. And if that's uh, the case, then we need to change that. Yes, exactly. That economic structure, if that, if that has impaled you and made you a, a slave to this thing, then, then we need yeah. to undo that Yeah, in some it, way. It's kind of, yeah, it's, uh, it's tragic because another thing, I think it goes back to education. Uh, I don't even know how you do it, but we're not sort of leaving the children with the, with the abject to have critical thinking. Absolutely. And, we, I don't, and what I'm seeing a lot of, of course, 
I go from get a job at 12. Uh, I don't see a real work ethic where there's sort of a pride in going out and just making your own and being a part. Right. Right. You know, uh, and that was strengthened by the, the COVID years too, where yeah, exactly, people don't yeah. have to go out to, to, to work. They're, they're working yeah. from home and, oh man, we got, yeah. we have a lot of work to do. We yes. have a lot of work to do. With that, I'm going to wrap up this week's session, if that's okay with you, Dr. Sure. Chuck. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, ask you what we're going to talk about next we're week. We're going to continue exploring this idea of the wounded storyteller, and we're going to be looking at some of the traditional stories told among our Ramapo brothers and sisters. Very good. Thank uh, you very much. Let me thank you, gentlemen, for allowing me to be a small part of this wonderful program. Thank you, Chief. This thank is you, great. Chief Perry. We really appreciate your being here. for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845 764 1787. That's 845 764 1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also, at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.